0: today to talk about William Shakespeare, one of the greatest artists, writers and playwrights that's ever existed in our race, the Aryan or Indo-European people, or, to be truthful, in any other group on this planet. Now Shakespeare lived during the Elizabethan period and wrote over 50 plays. He was an artist who was also an active actor and jobbing writer. For him, the work was part of the craft that he did in and around theatres which he helped to own and manage. Shakespeare has become integral to Western culture, and to English and British culture in particular, but there is a degree to which many liberals of the present time find a lot of his work to be problematical. There are elements in all of the plays which do not fit in well with contemporary discourse. If we look at a play like Taming of the Shrew, for example, even the title itself is quote-unquote sexist and doesn't fit in with allegedly politically correct nostrums of this period. Let's go right to the heart of the most controversial metapolitical area involving Shakespeare. Metapolitics is cultural struggle, it's the politics of culture rather than narrow sectarian and party interest. Race and discourses about ethnicity are central to the Shakespearean experience. They occur in an early work like Titus Andronicus, they occur throughout the Earthra. they centre in Othello. Traditionally, Othello has always been played in our theatres with a white man blacked up in the manner of Laurence Olivier. Now he's a blackamoor, in some ways um, a Negroid arrow, but he's nearly always played as a black or African individual in the British or Western theatre. But as things have moved on, we now have a viewpoint manifested from post-1960s British drama in particular, that Othello is quote-unquote a racist play. This means that non-white actors, traditionally, have started to take up the role, and perform Othello thereby. But later on, possibly in the last ten to fifteen years, pioneered by Dodds from the Yorkshire Playhouse, for example, there is the view that, because this play is quote-unquote racist, even to have a non-white in the leading romantic part isn't good enough. So what has now happened is that a rather liberal-minded white actor, not blacked up, plays Othello in order to fit in with new linguistic and mental and moral conceptions as regards this part. Now, why go to all of of these difficulties? Why consider that this play is in any way difficult to understand or ethically appreciate? The real reason is that there is a critique of miscegenation at the heart of this particular play even though Othello and Desdemona are treated as tragic characters in love. Iago, the villain of the piece without any question, and based upon certain Machiavellian philosophical precepts of which Shakespeare was generally aware at that time and coming out of Tudor discourse before him, makes Iago into a real villain. He is the agent of evil, of malevolence, of forces, of destruction or non-creativity. Shakespeare is always true to the moral cast of a character, and puts himself in their place. He is shallow, but he's an egotist. He's puffed up with the splendour of self, and with glory. He wishes to debase and destroy, yet at the same time feel his own power in the quickness of the struggle. But he is also an agency of fate, of what ancient Greeks would have called ate, negative fate, destructive identity, which comes in their religious system from the Furies. He destroys and tears down and mutilates, morally and ultimately physically, these two characters, Othello and Desdemona, because they have contracted into a union outside their own racial kind. Because Shakespeare is coming out of a post-medieval conception, even though the country has formally rejected Roman Catholicism as the state religion and turned to a mildly Protestant or Anglican dispensation under Henry VIII and his successors on the throne. And in this way of thinking, we have a situation which says that all of the races are created by God, but at the same time they should remain separate or entire. There is always a discourse, as with Lenny Riefenstahl's photos from the 1960s of the Newbert in the Sudan, of estrangement and difference and differentiation about the other. In Nietzsche's thinking, at the end of the 19th century, such an idea will be called the pathos of difference it's in many ways an aristocratic mode of thought. It is quite alien to the egalitarian and liberal left values which dominate British and Western European and North American culture at the present time. So we see in this particular play a medley of ideas which have come to seem unacceptable to present-day opinion, which were, but which were totally integral and centred in the culture out of which Shakespeare came. But Othello isn't the only play where these alleged problems come to the fore. Titus Andronicus was an early work, and is a violent tragedy of revenge. Sometimes the number of bodies, as with John Webster's play, The Duchess of Malfi, at the end of the dramaturgy, leads a modern audience to giggle because there's so many corpses around the stage. There's almost a grungy knoll or punch and duty element, to the number of people who die and their deaths are treated with a certain levity, often after sword fights and stabbings and so on, which had the pit in the globe at the height of the Elizabethan age on their feet, roaring and cheering and throwing nuts and orange peel about, because people went to this theatre the way a proportion of our people today go to a soccer match. Now in Titus Andronicus, Tamora, who's the queen of the Goths, has a black lover, Erin, and this symbolises her outsider status, her status as a demon and a Lilith, who tortures Andronicus's family, and in the end is done to death. Much of the blood dramaturgy of this particular work is based on Seneca, and is based upon Roman tragic drama which draws upon the Greeks. And the Elizabethans had Greek tragedy out of Rome via a discourse of modernity that came through Erasmus and from the Italian Renaissance. So in a way, Shakespeare and Webster and Marlowe and Kidd and all of the other great Elizabethan playwrights are working their way back to the beginnings of our tragic art and sensibility through Romanesque examples which have been handed down to them or across to them via the Italian Renaissance. We're particularly looking, ultimately, back to Sophocles, less Euripides really, but primarily to Aeschylus. Now, at the heart of the Aristia, which is the beginning of all tragic Western drama, there's a blood sacrifice and a feast, particularly involving the House of Atreus, and revenges that go on there in this part of southeastern Mediterranean Europe, two and a half thousand to three thousand years ago. This is then filtered through Romanesque tragedy via Seneca in the play Theistes, which was lost by Carol Churchill in the 1980s in quite a famous Royal Shakespeare Company performance, and this then comes forwards to the use of revenge as a motif for early and bloody Elizabethan tragedy. There was a very famous version of Titus by Peter Brook, who was highly influenced by Artaud's ideas of the Theatre of Cruelty in the 1960s and late 50s, and it partly was based on the Stratford production from the early 1950s, which made Laurence Olivier's name, which catapulted him to to great star status, and which ultimately led him to become the first major principal of the National Theatre, first at the Old Vic, and then to be based on the South Bank. Those are two of the plays that deal with the nature of race in a way that makes them very relevant today, given that a multiracial society for the last 50 years has been created around us, the other play which liberals in many ways do not like, quote-unquote, is The Merchant of Venice. This is a play which is allegedly, quote-unquote, anti-Semitic, but much less so, even if we admit that it might be, in comparison to Marlowe's The Jew of Malta, for example, which really is a piece of puppet adult theatre on Grand Grignol, deliberately made as a, a theatrical potboiler by Marlowe in comparison to a play like Tamburlaine to make money because these were playwrights who were interested in getting the public in. They weren't just writing for a small little intellectual elite, they were drawing an entire culture. The aristocracy, the Burgess orders, whores, soldiers, the plebs, everyone went to the Globe, and there are parts of the play that appeal to each part of the audience. The Merchant of Venice was put on in the late 1980s by Trevor Nunn's company at The National there's one black character of a minor cast in that particular play. A third of the characters at the national were black. And there was an apology at the end of the play for the Holocaust, which I don't imagine has occurred 500 years ago when the play was actually conceived. Now these things are done, and sometimes quite mainstream modern variants of this material are done without any cognizance of PC or politically correct rhetoric at all. But these things are done because people are ashamed and embarrassed and self-estranged from their own culture and from the manifestation of their own ethnicity in, in this respect, high culture. Now, if we move on from race as a motif of otherness and otherworldliness and outsider status to look at the central politics of these particular dramas. You can look at the relationship, complicated though it be, between the three daughters and Lear in a play that bears that name. Shakespeare set King Lear before the Christian era, and morally in the atmosphere of King Canute, as it were, because he wanted to explore certain ideas which were non-Christian. Lear is the harshest play um, in terms of its moral theory of life, in terms of its eschatology and its belief in ultimate human moral purpose that Shakespeare ever wrote. During one particular period the end of Lear was actually changed by Nahum Tate in the 18th century because people found the ending too harsh and too violent, yet again an example of the fact that Puritanism or Philistinism has always interfered with Shakespeare and his direct appeals to audiences after the immediate Jacobean and Elizabethan period. Today, the form of Puritanism and censorship that's involved is of a liberal left varying, but it wasn't always so. There are three daughters that Leah has, and very foolishly, as every contemporary listener of the play would have known, he divides his kingdom between them. One, two, three. Cordelia, Goneril, Regan. Regan and Goneril are out for themselves and our wolves and our animals who want to tear Leah down and reduce him to penury and madness on the heath with his fool. The only one who's foolish enough, or brave enough or moral enough, depending, to stay with him, together with Edgar, who in a sense is Gloucester's fool, in the subplot of the play. There's one scene in that play, the blinding of Gloucester, where he is made to physically suffer, which is one of the most remarkable and cruelest acts in world theatre, but it in turn goes back to Sophocles in ancient Greece, and is brought forward. Sophocles wrote a trilogy called the Theban plays, in which Oedipus, blinds himself because he murders his father accidentally and commits incest with his own mother, Jocasta. Now Shakespeare factors that forward to the blinding of Gloucester by the sadist Cornwall, when he shouts, Out, vile jelly! Where is thy lustre now? And Gloucester is sent away to throw himself metaphorically and actuarially off the cliffs at Dover with his son Edgar. Shakespeare is never frightened of violence, or of cruelty, or of patriotism, or of warfare, but they are never gratuitous. Much of contemporary culture, which masquerades as mass entertainment, often involves motifs endlessly repeated because they're always in the human mind, of sexuality and violence. But the problem with a lot of this material is it's not connected to anything organic, and therefore it doesn't mean anything, and is just shallowly superficial and pornographic in the worst rather than the best of senses. With Shakespeare these things are always bred in the bone and related to language and related to ideas and structures of being and meaning, which is why they're resonated for people in all groups, actually, but principally our own, all over the world. If one moves to another play, like Macbeth, Macbeth has been criticised by feminist critics particularly in new wave or second generation feminism, in the 1970s, because of the betrayal, or portrayal, of Lady Macbeth. She is more staunch than Macbeth, more ruthless, more feminine in a vindictive way, more of a hecate, more of a Lilith, more of a woman who keeps him to the touching stone, who gives him the daggers, in reality and metaphorically, so he can go in and stab Duncan under their roof which of course is a blasphemy against honour and a code of hospitality, whether in the Scotland of Macbeth's day or the England of Shakespeare's Elizabethan Renaissance. Now, there's an extraordinary painting by Guisele in the National Gallery, or maybe in the Tate, actually, which shows the aftermath of the murder of Duncan and his two stewards. When Macbeth, who's been brought up to the nature of the deed, by his wife, Lady Macbeth, comes out with the two daggers and holds them up before her, steaming and reeking with blood and with gore, and to one side she's there, the Gorgon, almost in see-through white, like a ghost, wrapped in silk, looking very much like a Medusa in certain images on coins and shields which have come down to us from ancient Greece. Now in this play, there is an understanding of the dialectic and the interrelationship between a man and a woman in a ruling marriage, where he's been elevated to being Fane of Cordor by Duncan. But Fane of Cordor? Why not king of all Scotland when he can take it with power outside morality, which ultimately leads in the concourse and cavalcade of the play to murder after murder to the return of ghosts, uh, of those that be slain, and ultimately to nihilism, and to moral despair at the end of the drama, quote-unquote, signifying nothing. Now, it's important to understand that Shakespeare cannot be fitted easily into any box, a liberal or allegedly politically correct one of the present time, or an illiberal one, or an ultra-conservative one. With him all voices are the flow-through of his own artistic consciousness and imagination. He is a pure playwright, perhaps the purest that's ever lived, which is why he's, in some ways, become universal in his present moral currency. And that's because when he has a character before him on the page, he thinks himself totally into that character. And what they are, what their values amount to, the philosophy which may animate them at any stage of their being, flows through him onto the page. It's pure theatre even though it's rooted in the ideology of the period where he lived and wrote and worked and acted, because he acted in nearly all of his plays, he performed in a lot of the sword flights, he directed people, he took plays by Fletcher that were half-made, uh, such as Pericles, and he reworked them to make them slightly better. Uh, probably other manuscripts of which we know very little, like Edmund Ironside and so on, were worked over by him. He was always coming to material, basing much of what he said and wrote on Hollandshed's chronicles, and building it up into new tabernacles of force and ecstasy and energy. This is particularly seen in the patriotic plays, quintessentially Henry V, which was made into a famous wartime propaganda film in 1940-41 at the behest of Winston Churchill, with Laurence Olivier in the lead a magnificent sort of traditional British cinema film seen in its own terms, is a quintessential play of English radicalism and patriotic forethought. It's a statement of warlike intensity where these Norman nobles wore back upon the France from which they ultimately came to seize large chunks of it for England and to force a union between the English and French royal houses. It's a play which to this day, is nakedly patriotic in its feel, and which many liberals internally dislike as a consequence. William Hazlitt, the well-known liberal writer of the early part of the nineteenth century, wrote a debunking essay about Henry V along these lines. Ezra Pound responded to that in a different spirit, for example, in the twentieth century, upwards of a hundred years on. Now, in all of this, it's important to remember that Shakespeare had a cosmology and a feeling of life. The Elizabethans believed that there were static globes or spheres above us ascending to the heavens and to God. They also believed that life was classical and proportioned in a way that we, thinking about physical processes of pure energy, don't really believe the world, biologically or otherwise, now to be. They also believed that not only was man God's creature, but he was the centre of everything, and that the centre of life on this earth was England which is why Shakespeare internalises the idea that the Elizabethan monarchy and its culture had moved away from the papacy and from Roman Catholicism. The real point about having a Christian religiosity, or any religiosity, for ourselves in these islands at Shakespeare's time was to have a national version of the European culture. This is the foundation point, culturally, of the British state before it goes out to the world in the empire. Which will become the largest empire that the world had seen since Rome, up to the present time. That empire only really begins to die 50 years ago, in our society, in the lifetimes of some of the people watching this video. Now we have a situation where liberal ideas have come in over the last 50 to 60 years and in turn have retrospectively reoriented everything and see everything in their own terms and in accordance with their own lights. Othello is seen as a tragic and romantic hero. Who doesn't point out the dangers of race mixing, but is in a strange way a validation of that which was once decried. Titus Andromachus is seen as a pithy comment, in a supererogatory way, on the nature of the revenge tragedy, upending it, producing so many bodies, and having so much militancy of blood and struggle that there's a degree to which the whole thing becomes a bit of a joke and could be considered as such, and is treated as a bit of a sadic ballet by people like Brooke in his well-known version of it with Olivier, 40 years plus ago. We have a situation where The Taming of the Shrew is considered to be a quote-unquote reactionary play, and is played up to the hill in order to demarcate our present feelings of feminism and sexual egalitarianism in relation to that which once was. We have a situation where um, some of the battle scenes in Julius Caesar are considered so far back that they don't need to be considered seriously in relation to contemporary violence and slaughter. We have a play or, in this sense, a long poem which is dramatic and theatrical but is still a poem, The Rape of Lucrece, which can never really be viewed without irony, because you have a member of the Roman aristocracy who is raped by a dissolute individual descended from the royal house, the House of Tarquin, which uh, was the key early monarchy in Rome before it became an aristocratic republic, and she is raped and done down, and her husband revenges the rape by killing the rapist, namely Tarquinius. But at the same time, she, dishonoured, kills herself because of the cult, not of the virgin, but of the marital virgin, in other words of a woman who only gives herself to one man within marriage. Now, this is really, and has been regarded for the last 250 years, never mind the last 50 years, in increasingly liberal ideas, as a ridiculous notion, which moderns, so to say, can't really get their head around. There's a famous painting of this incident by Cintoretto, whereby Lucrece is raped by Tarpin, or you begin to see the early stages of that. Benjamin Britten made a chamber opera of these very events and of certain textual elements of Shakespeare's work in the 1950s, halfway through the cycle of operas which for him was to end with Billy Bard, which is based on a novella by Henry Melville. Now, Shakespeare brings to bear In all of this, and in all of the plays which we haven't even mentioned, even though we've been through Caesar and Macbeth and Lear and Titus Andronicus and uh, we've looked at the Rope of Lucrece and other works, Shakespeare brings to bear the entire weight of a culture which is animated through him and in him and in his language. Most people find the language at times when they first confront it, a bit of a bar, or something that they have to leap over, but in actual fact the language is the key to the nature of the entire work. Even none, who I've criticised for certain of his PC variants of Shakespeare's dramaturgy when he was head of the National Theatre in the mid to late 80s and early 1990s, said that in the end all you have is the text, an unusual surf- source for it, but Stephen Berkhoff said much the same in relation to Macbeth. You can pare away everything. You could have even a minimalist set. You don't have to play it in Elizabethan period, a la The Globe, but you can have the text before you, semiotically, as a living document, because of its power, because of its magic, because almost of the incantatory nature of the language which is used. It's a special type of language. It's called, technically, the iambic pentameter. This is the register in which he wrote, but it is designed to heighten experience and to distill emotion and make of it blood-and-bone poetry that speaks to us, and to our race, and to all people, for all time. Shakespeare is quintessentially English and British, but belongs to all Western, white and European people throughout the world. There's a great attempt now to dumb down everything and to place all things upon a cultural level. Shakespeare, amongst many other authors, stands out against this prevailing trend. But if we lose what he says across half a millennia, to us, we will have lost a core, integral, linguistic and racial part of what it is to be English, to be British, to be white, to be European. His language isn't old or fastian or archaic or fuddy duddy It's immediate and strikes through to the hearts of men and women. In love, in hate, in war, in peace, in belief, in the absence of belief. To read Shakespeare is a revolutionary act in an age where people say we have no culture but the culture of globalism and where all groups and all usages of language are deemed to be of equal merit.